Today's program is brought to you by the Museum of Food and Drink, sparking curiosity about food with exhibits you can eat. For more information, visit mofad.org. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Welcome to Feast Your Ears. I'm Harry Rosenblum from the Brooklyn Kitchen. Join me every Wednesday as I talk with people about what they do and how it influences their personal food stories. This is a show about people, life, and food. Please take a moment to like the show on iTunes if you, in fact, like it, or maybe you don't know yet, so maybe when you get to the end you can think about liking it. And you can reach out to me if you have any questions about the show or guests or any topics, harry at thebrooklynkitchen.com. You can follow me on social media at thefoodballer. Working on a new thing here with the uh, with the show. So if you if you listen last week, uh, I started with a new piece of the show that every every opener I'm going to talk about what I cooked this week or what I ate this week, and it's a question that I have for my guests as well. So what I ate this week or cooked this week, I was away for Memorial Day weekend, uh, visiting some friends in Massachusetts, and decided to go out in the woods and see if we could maybe scare up some morels because it was morel season recently, and we thought it might be a little bit late. And after a couple of unsuccessful attempts, we managed to come upon a grove of trees that had a ton. So we probably got like two dozen morels the size of like, each one was like the size of a banana. I mean, they were enormous. So uh, also foraged uh, some dryad saddle, which is another edible mushroom that comes out around the same time as morels. You have to forage those really young if you're going to eat them because um, they turn really leathery. And then someone else who was staying in the house, my friend's brother, was out for a run and found a bunch of chicken of the woods. So it was a real wild mushroom kind of a weekend. Uh, I'd love to welcome to episode number 73 Feast Your Ears. Uh, I have Jen and Rob in the studio who are the team behind Gotham Grove, which is a new company that you may not have heard of yet. Their website still says coming soon, but it's coming soon. Uh, and they specialize in importing uh, really incredible Korean ingredients. So welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you, Thank you for, for having us. us. Um, so I guess since I started out talking about what I ate this week, this is sort of a new format for me. I haven't done this much before. Um, you know, let's talk. Both of you guys in your pre-show uh, questionnaire said that Jen's mom's curry was the best thing that you had eaten. Undoubtedly. <laughs> so tell me about Jen's mom's curry. So it's actually, I guess it would be more of a Japanese-style curry, although it's very popular in Korea, too. So we she uses stock and the little curry blocks you find in the Japanese markets and normally has some sort of protein whether it's tofu chicken she made it with chicken and it's it's just delicious um, it's a lot thicker than right. the coconut milk variety that you normally see sure. um, I we eat it with either rice or some udon um, I just end up sometimes pouring it over fried chicken so it Last and goes so many different ways, and I think I may have forced quite a few bowls to Rob <laughs> during our work. He doesn't. He's not making a face that no, it looks no, like no, it was no. a force. I, I was just going to say my ultimate goal for Gotham Grove is basically to build a product portfolio entirely based on Jen's mom's cooking. <laughs> 
that sounds like a really uh, solid, solid business plan. So, so tell me about Gotham Grove. Um, tell me about sort of what is the, what's the mission of the company? I mean, I, I've, we've yeah. talked about it outside of this studio and it does sound a lot like when I hear you talk about it, that a lot of the products you're passionate about and passionate about bringing here are things that are from Korea mm-hmm. where you where you grew up and that are related to your mom's cooking. Yeah. Yeah. So we view ourselves as a food marketing company that, um, aims to provide a platform for small producers. Um, that's the ultimate goal. You mentioned that what are um, our ultimate you know, horizon goals sure. down the line. Um, we are starting off with Korean products and good quality Korean products, mainly because um, my family still lives in Korea. There's a huge connection there. Um, Rob and I have actually traveled to Asia in the past before together um, when we were students. And, you know, it... It was a good excuse for me to um, have some sort of a rationale and justification in smuggling a lot of Korean food back to U.S. <laughs> every time I go visit. Um, also, for me personally and emotionally, it felt me a lot more connected back to my family and what I loved growing up that is very difficult to find here. Right. Um, again, our ultimate goal is to not just focus on Korean products coming in, but what can we do to provide a platform for small producers that could be based in Brooklyn that want to look at Korean market right. or other Asian markets. Um, and yeah, that's kind of how the company was formed and hoping to get there someday. I think the the yeah. missing foods from one's home place is really, I mean, that's mm-hmm. the immigrant food story, right? And that's what has caused every, I mean, that's why there's olive oil grown in California is that people moved here and they wanted olive oil yeah. and they wanted it fresh and so they had to grow it here. And, and I think that we're only seeing an increase in interest in food from other countries. Asia specifically has been blowing up. Yeah. And so there's a lot more better Japanese products here, a lot more better Chinese products and Korean products. And, and I think there's a, there's a huge market for that among expats and all also among people who just happen to be interested in food. Yeah, totally. And I think one of the other goals that Rob and I have talked about, and um, Rob may be more well-versed and creative in this, as well as my husband, John, um, is looking at an ingredient, and I may say, well, this is how we use it in Korea. But Rob and John is able to come with a fresh outlook of, well, it has a salty note to it, so actually it may go really well with a buttered pasta. Um, and I think that's been a lot of fun for us in figuring out how to introduce the food in a way that's not this niche, special, you know, Asian ingredient, right. but... How can you use it and incorporate it using local ingredients and your everyday cooking? Absolutely. And, and that's something I think that we also see more and more. I think that people, you know, from, from the Brooklyn Kitchen side of things, I see consumers and I see people coming to our classes who are interested both in recreating an authentic bowl of ramen at home but who also are buying ramen noodles because they've become their favorite noodle. Yeah. And so they're buying those to cook with other flavors. So there's both wanting to be super traditional about it and to use these things yeah. in their traditional format. And then there's, I, you know, I think there's almost a, a trickle down from what we see in the really high-end or, you know, omakase-style tasting menu restaurants where chefs are constantly playing with flavors mm-hmm. and constantly playing with flavors from different inspirations. And people are starting to put that together at home, which is exciting. Absolutely. And from a nutritional standpoint, um, it fills a gap uh, in terms of 
I've been spending a lot of time looking for, you know, good probiotic foods, um, good, you know, people drinking apple cider vinegar. I have one, you know, a teaspoon every morning. Um, and the vinegars that we're bringing in sort of serve the same function, but they're so much more complex and interesting, I think. Um, so it's sort of an interesting time in terms of, you know, where things are going. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, having tasted a lot of the, the mm -hmm. products that you guys are, are working on, I mean, I guess. So tell me a little bit. Can you can you give a quick uh, overview of the products that you're currently working on bringing in? Yeah, we have and we have three different producers that we work with and we're very excited about. Um Two are vinegar producers, and they're both family-owned. Um, one has been around for 120-plus years. Um, they are have a medicine background. So the matriarch of the family used to be a um, what we consider medicine woman in Korea. Sure. So their vinegar actually only became available for commercial sale probably around 15 years ago. Oh, okay. Prior to that, it was provided as medicines to Asian doctors, um, Asian medicine doctors. So that, so that it would be, if you went to a, a, an Asian medicine doctor yeah. in Korea and you they said, I have this ailment, they would give you a bottle vinegar. of this vinegar. Yeah. They would sell it directly? Was that the yeah. sales channel? Or, or you would, they would prescribe it and then you wait, normally you wait a week or so until it's made you know, Got or, it. or bottled actually in the case of a vinegar and yeah. get it. Um, so, but it was really direct sales. Direct it wasn't, sale. it wasn't the way it is here where no. you walk into a pharmacy oh, no, no, and you no. can buy all this crap off no. the shelf. <laughs> no. Um, and they're fascinating. Um, they have their own farm and man-made caves where they age the vinegars. Um, and they basically, because of the medicine background have a huge focus on using, um, natural, Korean-grown herbs um, and, you know, fruits and vegetables in their vinegar. The other vinegar producer is um, focused on and specializes in the black vinegar. And what makes black vinegar is that it's done using solely brown rice instead of uh, a mixture of rice, like white rice, sticky rice, and brown rice. Um, and they have, it's a second generation, and they make the some interesting flavors. Um, their black vinegars, the classic lines, are all trademarked in Korea. Um, they make one, the snail vinegar, which you've tasted, Harry. Um, and they also um, are just very artisanal. None of these products are pasteurized, um, aged at least eight or nine years, at least for the snail, um, at the minimum of three years for some of their other flavors. Our last partner is a sesame and perilla oil producer. He's not, he's actually the founder. So he's a true um, entrepreneur, small business owner. Um, and he did R&D for seven years where he just looked at sesame seeds, perilla seeds, looked at various roasting method. And what makes them very special is that he uses infrared ray to roast his seeds in a very low temperature. So it it cooks the seeds without burning the outside, and you extract the full flavor. Um, and then he uses a pharmaceutical-grade filter at the end. So you can see a man spending seven years right. doing research. <laughs> Just <laughs> um, to figure out how to do it. Yeah, yeah. but it's, it's delicious, and it's all, you know, every single product that Rob and I look at is product that we would buy right. um, and we would use and enjoy. And we actually, you know... When we meet with the partners, we would purchase it on our own and use it at home um, separately from the producer. And 
you know, that's one of the first ways we figure out how to use it. And all our partners seem to have a very unique way of looking at whatever product they're producing. So for the oil partners, they don't compare themselves to other sesame oils or perilla oils. They're trying to compete with the top olive oils uh, Got it. when they're you know, thinking about the sourcing in terms of seeds. Mm-hmm. Uh, the roasting, they took inspiration from the high-end coffee roasters rather than other sesame producers. Sure. And our vinegar partner, well, the first one that Jen mentioned, the Hanega, they age it for eight years in a cave, stirred every day, tended to as if it were a child, played classical music in the caves. Mm -hmm. Um, It's really... You know, it's a, it's an amazing. I mean, it, so as a as a as a young portfolio, I think it 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 shows a lot of interesting pieces of what's going on in food. I think the the health aspect of vinegar is one that you know, having just written a vinegar book, it, it, you know, it, it it's something that is definitely out there and becoming more popular. Yet this is a product that's been around for a long time in in Asia and in Korea that's been used for these medicinal purposes, but they, the care that's put into it. So it sounds like that producer Hanaga is very, what I guess in the West we would consider to be kind of traditional, right? Yeah, it's, it's very old school. It's very like anti-modernization. Mm-hmm. Like they're still doing it exactly the same way. I'm sure that they've always done it. Yeah. Um, personally, I find the, the, uh, the, the contrast with the sesame and perillo oil maker to be really interesting. Mm-hmm. The idea that that producer is new mm-hmm. and took a real scientific approach to say, well, how can I use modern technology yep. to right. do this and make a high, high quality product that is regarded as a high quality product mm-hmm. um, against other more traditional oils, yeah. as I understand it in, in Korea. For listeners who may not know, perilla oil is made from perilla seeds. It's what we in the West no, as shiso. Mm-hmm. Um, so just from a plant standpoint, um, perilla is a, a word that we're not as familiar with. Yeah. And in Korea, the leaves are normally um, pickle, so soy marinated pickles. And you would eat that as part of a panchan, which basically is a side dish. Um, and then the seeds are roasted and turned into oil. Um, the other thing is these perilla seeds are one of the healthiest seeds that you can find. Um, it has a very high amount of omega-3, and the only comparable seeds are probably chia seeds or flax, flax seeds. seeds, I think. Flax seeds. Um, but, but you can't really find a great chia seed oil or flax seed oil mm-hmm. to cook with. So it's, it's, a, it's a great, great oil, and we... We use it on everything. <laughs> we use it on everything. In uh, there are restaurants in Seoul, I think, that are using them in ice cream. Yeah. In their desserts oh, yeah. As well. Oh my gosh. Yeah. It so- sounds really Need good. To try I, that. I think that. Um, so, in your in your promotion of these products, um, are you focused more on the culinary use or on the health food use? To this point, we've been focusing more on the culinary use. Um, these are. You know, our customers primarily right now are restaurants. Um, once we, you know, focus a little bit more on retail, maybe we'll expand a little bit on the on the health benefits because there are a, a ton of health benefits. Right. But for for now, we're focused more on the culinary. And I think that brings um, that's actually a great point, Harry. One of the things that Rob and I have been also focusing on when we talk about products and get a sense of it for the U.S. market is doing the tasting events where we invite um, close friends and family and friends um, 
mainly industry folks um, like yourself um, to come and taste the products. And essentially the goal of that is not to sell to the attendees, but to just listen, what do you like about it? What do you hate about it? And I think that has given us a lot of um, great like viewpoints that we didn't think about. Um, because again, I think this is what I mentioned earlier is I'm thinking sesame oil from what I grew up with. Um, vinegar what I grew up with and it has been a great eye-opening session for us and we are using all of those viewpoints as we start looking at retail and getting ready to um, really complete that process. Mm -hmm. Do you plan on uh, focusing only on producers and kind of promoting their work and their brands in the U.S. or do you think that you'll someday package things under the Gotham Grove name? It's funny you mentioned that. We've actually started working with a couple of very, very small producers um, who aren't necessarily as commercialized as the, our current partners um, to produce a couple of very small private label. Uh, oh, interesting. Yeah. So yeah. very small producers doing private label. That's mm-hmm. interesting because my sense is often in the work that I've done traveling in Japan and speaking with producers that often it's the small producers who won't do that. Because they don't produce enough. And so it's much easier for large producers to say, sure, we'll sell you a bunch of this for you to bottle. So that's interesting. So you have very small producers. Yeah. So it's literally those very small producers will probably never get to the retail level. Um, It's more we're kind of using it as we look at it as like, hate to say use like a term for it, but the two prong approach. One is test products. Yep. Um, we these very small producers. It's unique products. Um, so, for example, we have a uh, plum syrup, a Korean plum. So, Korean plum for those of uh, the listeners who's never had it, it's extremely sour. <laughs> so, um, we they turn this producer turns it into a syrup. It's been fermented. It's it's there. A lot of regular consumer may not really find a good use for it. So we bring in some unique products that we're we're unsure how it would be uh, received in the marketplace and have a very small quantity that we share with either friends who are interested in it or chefs. And the the only thing we ask is for a feedback, what they thought about it, how they used it, so that it's kind of serving a little bit as a research method. Um, the other is these very small producers, they're not very interested in expanding big. They Sometimes it's done in a kitchen. Um, so it's more of giving them a little bit of the capital and the tool, um, but, you know, kind of providing a different type of support versus a medium-sized company that wants to grow and have hit a bit of a hurdle in the Korean market. Yeah, I mean, I think that in the West, we're very focused on business growth always. Mm -hmm. And so the idea that somebody would just want to continue making 10 10 of whatever it is a day, and that's fine. They make enough, Mm -hmm. they have their house, they have their life, they have their kids, it's fine. Is not something that in the West I think we're sort of like in tune with, because we look at that and we're like, but wait, if you made it more (laughs) efficient, you could do 10 times as much business, and why wouldn't you want to do that? And don't you want to be selling more and making this and making this? And I think that in a lot of parts of the world, that's not actually the case. I think people want to take it a little little slower, perhaps. Um, So, do you think that... 
in the future of Gotham Grove, I mean, so it sounds like initially a lot of the products are coming, Jen, from you. What about you, Rob? Are there are there products that you grew up with that your mother or your grandmother used that you feel like we'll see in the market? I mean, you grew up here in the my States. Brother, my mother and my grandmother are from Youngstown, Ohio. <laughs> so if we can make some, you know... Italian wedding soup <laughs> ingredients, or you know, I'm trying to think. Is that uh, what it's known Cincinnati, for? Cincinnati chili, right? <laughs> exactly. Like, why not? Um, There's great potato chips. Come as Zerbies are from out exactly, that way, right? Exactly. Um, so, from a culinary standpoint, and my father's from uh, the UK. Uh, so, I don't maybe some ciders at some point or something. I, I'm sort of more interested in the Korean and sure. East Asian um, spaces geographically right now. But I do think, you know, I like where we're going in terms of the oils and the vinegars. And I think there's a lot of room for expansion there. Obviously, I don't need to tell you about the, the vinegars. <laughs> yeah. um, but I think it's sort of, it's a very exciting space to be in. Um, and I, th- I think there's a lot of potential. I mean, we'll see where it goes. We, you know, yeah. we're sort of taking it step by step and it's like the full startup mode you know small business mode where we find ourselves constantly pivoting we're like oh wait that seemed like a great idea last week yep exactly (laughs) absolutely we've been doing some websites on the side (laughs) for small businesses yeah we're going to take a we'll take a short break, uh, and when we come back, I want to hear the story about the uh, the wedding in South Sudan <laughs> that you mentioned of earlier. Of cooking issues on the Heritage Radio Network. We all know and love Chinese takeout dishes like General Tso's chicken and egg rolls. But here's the thing. Even though we call it Chinese food, it's not like the food you'd find in China. What's the story behind this cuisine? And how did it become so popular that you can find a Chinese-American restaurant in nearly every town in the country? The answers may surprise you. Visit the Museum of Food and Drink in Brooklyn and see our newest exhibition, Chow, Making the Chinese-American Restaurant. Chow engages visitors with compelling accounts of how Chinese immigrants overcame racism and created Chinese-American cuisine. Discover the science behind the flavors of your favorite takeout dishes, feast on rotating tastings developed by the country's most talented Chinese-American chefs, and try your hand at writing your own fortune, which will be baked into actual cookies by a 1,500-pound fortune cookie machine. But what better way to learn, connect, and eat? You can visit Chow at the Museum of Food and Drink on Fridays through Sundays from noon to 6. Tickets and more information can be found at mofad.org. Hey, like what you hear? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. With fresh programming every week, we've got something for everyone. Trying to start your own food business? Concerned about where your food comes from? Looking for the best wine or beer to bring to a party? Find our shows on iTunes or Stitcher, or head to heritageradionetwork.org to listen live and subscribe to our newsletter. Welcome back to Feast Your Ears. I'm Harry Rosenblum, and I have Jen and Rob in the studio today behind Roberta's here. Uh, 
we, Jen and Rob have a, a company that's just getting off the ground called Gotham Grove, and they're focused on supporting small food producers, um, and specifically at the moment, focused on products from Korea, which is where Jen grew up. So before the break, we were talking about the products you guys are working on, but I wanted to I wanted to get into a, a sort of story that's not exactly related to Gotham Grove, but I think it's a it's a good yeah we can get there we can make a connection it's a good it's a good story um and so uh rob started to kind of tell me a little bit about this story about a wedding in south sudan that they were trying to get the booze for because he was working for diageo so i'll let i'll let rob sort of tell the story yeah so i guess the way it relates to gotham grove is we're importing vinegars and at that time we were importing mostly beer um, from Kenya to South Sudan. Uh, my partner and I, who was also friends with Jen, um, had the exclusive license for, is technically Diageo's subsidiary in East Africa, EABL. Uh, and primarily that involved importing a beer called Tusker from Nairobi to Juba, South Sudan. Uh, and were you living in Africa at the time? Yes, I was back and back and forth um, in Juba. Very, very interesting time to be there. Um, just a quick background: they had the longest-running civil war in Africa, uh, very tragic. But they had a ceasefire in 2006, which granted the South independence in 2011. Prior to 2011, there had been smugglers basically importing. Uh, Mostly this Tusker beer that I mentioned and the rest of Diageo's products. Uh, when they became independent in 2011, uh, it became official, legit business, and we happened to get the import license. Uh, so while we were there, my partner started dating and eventually became engaged to the daughter of the president of South Sudan. <laughs> <laughs> so we ended up having a big... Well, it's not technically a royal wedding because it's not a monarchy, but for sure. all intents and purposes. <laughs> right. The state wedding. It exactly. was on yeah. the newspaper. <laughs> it was in the newspaper. Yeah. It was a big deal in the newspaper. It was on state TV as well. Uh, I was one of the groomsmen in the wedding. And, uh, yeah, I think there were about 10,000 people at the reception. Oh, so it was small. Yeah, it was small. Very small. A little wedding. small. <laughs> Small affair, exactly. Um, and I think it must have been, it was at least 100 degrees. I went through three shirts, no wow. joke. <laughs> Just, we were dressed in some combination of formal wear, and then we changed into traditional Ethiopian attire, traditional South Sudanese attire, and then back to the suits at some point. It was, <laughs> it was quite a production. Uh, ironically... Under the circumstances, since it was my import partner, uh, it ended up being a dry wedding because all of the booze for the wedding uh, got stuck at the border. <laughs> now, I mean, was that is that related to the political issues that were like, did the border know that this was for the president's daughter's wedding or? I think it's complicated, um, <laughs> as I'm so, sure these things. So are. I was I was flying. I'd been back in the states, and as I was flying there, I needed to get my visa renewed, and it's supposed to take a few weeks to a month. I, I, they recommend like three months. Wow! But I called the embassy and I told them the wedding that I was attending, 
and that I was a groomsman, and they got it done the same day and basically kept the embassy open for me. So unfortunately, the same procedure didn't apply didn't to the border. Alcohol. So yeah. we ended up with got a it. wedding that must have been, it must have been a, about 110 degrees in the evening and uh, no, no alcohol. And I almost uh, ended up giving the best man speech. Um, incidentally, the best man was getting a bit of cold feet, and I was sitting. Next I mean, it's to him. a little different to give the best man speech to like sixty people than to like ten thousand. I think it's kind of <laughs> yeah, and I can improvise a little bit, but <laughs> I certainly wasn't. <laughs> I certainly wasn't ready for that. Um, luckily, it all worked out in the end. But yes, this was being broadcast live on the uh, on the TV, and uh, we did have to do a couple of dances. Uh, which I was not prepared for either and definitely would have appreciated the beer yeah. to have been there for that <laughs> in my Mzungu background. So, uh, so fast forward to now, how did, uh, did you and Jen become business partners in Gotham Grove? Sure. So Jen and I have been friends and sort of collaborators from time to time since we went to business school together at uh, NYU. Um, and we worked on projects here and there. Um, we always enjoyed working together. We've always been pretty close, and we have very complementary skill sets as well, I think. So at some point, Jen had mentioned that she wanted to, well, she knew about my background in importation, which absolutely has no relevance to what we're doing now. <laughs> From a, an operational seemed standpoint. like a good idea. At the yeah, time. International borders, yeah, import absolutely. export, yeah, exactly. I, we we don't have anywhere near the amount of miscellaneous costs that Rob exactly had in his prior. Business. Inordinate. Miscellaneous I mean, is that something costs. you're working towards? Is that a goal for the company to have more miscellaneous costs? <laughs> no, it's probably just as well not. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I know Jen had been sort of. Jen always, whenever she brought her products back from Korea, she always shared them with me. And I got really excited, especially the first thing was kimchi, I think, because no offense to any of the brands here, but the kimchi that Jen brings back from Korea is just on another It's delicious. Yeah, it's amazing. Do you ever get your bag searched coming back? I have not. And I actually have had funny conversations with our friends regarding this, because whenever I come, come back from Korea, it's almost like dinner party at our place and I really hope there's no custom officials listening to this um, <laughs> it would put me in trouble but we God forbid the miscellaneous <laughs> expenses yeah um, we bring back a lot of stuff yeah and, I mean I, I yeah. always bring back stuff whenever I travel I mean and I've got the, the only thing I've I've not brought back somebody on my way to the airport uh, number of years ago in Japan tried to hand me like a fresh package with a steak in it it was just like wasn't even vacuum sealed. It was like wrapped in plastic <laughs> yeah. on a foam tray, and I was like, I can't. I'm sure the dogs would be excited. I can't take this on the plate. But I have taken cure. I've, I took. I brought uh, corned beef back from Japan that a chef gave mm. me that was fro- like frozen. So I like kept it oh. in the in the fridge up through like two different hotels. Yeah, but it was vacuum sealed. Yeah, and I brought that back. My wife is a big proponent of the idea that you always have some sacrificial food item like on the top of your carry on. So, like, years ago, we went to Italy, and we brought back cheese, and we brought back meat, and we brought all this mm-hmm. stuff that, you know, 
back then was you really weren't supposed to be bringing you know anything in on on pasteurized and so we had like a thing of like an open package of beef jerky on like the top of a purse when we were going through and they're like do you have any food and she was like I have this and they were like oh you can't bring that in but like they didn't search the rest of our bags at all got it I think I think what I end up doing is I I do take your wife's approach a little bit I always have cookies in my purse and they'll say do you have food and I'll I'll be like I have these cookies, you know, yeah. and I offer it to them and they always seem slightly disgusted and let me just go through. Um, yeah, I always, like, I always say I, when I came back from Japan in March, I brought, you know, I bought Kit Kats, of course. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I, they were like, do you have any food? And I was like, I bought Kit Kats for my kids. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Don't, don't look in the bag. Don't worry about all the vinegar and all the other, you know, <laughs> spices and dried fish. Don't, yeah. that's not. We, we bring back and we meaning now my husband John as well um, when we love to travel and whenever we come back there's assortment of not allowed food items I have done the raw beef Harry I have to say good um, I'm, I'm impressed yeah. I just I mean I just yeah. felt like I felt like it wouldn't have it made it was vacuum it. sealed though yeah see that's the thing if I had a vacuum sealed I would you know but just like open in a package in a plastic <laughs> bag with an ice pack I was like I can't I can't put this on a plane. It's just not going to last a 14-hour flight. That's true. <laughs> so uh, if there's, like, what is your favorite product? And So it sounds like a little bit some of these products that you're starting to import with Gotham Grove are things that you want to just have more readily available mm-hmm. here, right? Yeah. Absolutely. I think that's um, yeah, how it we, started, right? I think that's a great, uh, I mean, I think that's a great business model. <laughs> exactly. Um, no, well, exactly. We, we started out, and I was requesting some kimchi i said we should we should distribute this and then it was a little bit too complicated to begin for a refrigerated product yeah yeah Yeah. so we 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 looked at it of course it always starts with what we want to have um because the second step we do need to think about given that we're a baby company is what can we handle well um, and things that are refrigerated, it's a little bit tricky for us. But yeah. we will work towards it. Yeah. Um, hopefully, one day there will be some good kimchi from a seventy-year-old exactly. grandmother in the countryside. <laughs> nice, nice. <laughs> so, uh, where can people taste Gotham Grove imported products now? Are there are there are there any restaurants that are currently using your products? Yeah, so um, Danielle Restaurant in Upper East Side um, uses the uh, black vinegar, or have used it, um, and then they will be using the sesame and perilla oil. Um, the Batard Restaurant in Tribeca um, has started using some of the other, the Hanega vinegar, as well as the sesame perilla oil. So that will be, I don't think, it's not in the menu yet, but hopefully in this summer menu, um, Piora in West Village also. Um, and we hope to, as we really, you know, go into the warmer season, host a little bit more tasting sessions um, with folks and plan different events. And again, the whole goal of that would be for us to really get a perspective of likes and dislikes, how they would use it. We're really trying to get a more understanding of that. Um, that will also help us really look for products, um, new products sure. that haven't come in yet. So hopefully we'll be able to put some together some events and when our website is finally live, it'll be in there. You can also I'm looking at Rob, as I say, when our website is finally live. <laughs> it's, it's coming soon. <laughs> um, well, also, you can find our syrups 
in some cocktails. Oh yeah, that's true. Tart as well. Um, the, the plum syrup is now as part of a cocktail at Patart, and that's I think a very good example. The plum syrup in Korea is used in um, making sometimes in making white kimchi, which is the original part of kimchi um, tenderizer for meat. Um, sometimes in various meat dishes or sauces, things like that. Um, you don't really see it as much in cocktails, like mixed drinks. So that was a good example where we shared it with our friends and the first feedback was, oh, this would be great in a cocktail. And I think that's what gets us very excited. Um, of course, the importance is the authenticity and bringing the product, but also how can you be innovative and find new ways to use the product that, you know, maybe us as Koreans didn't think about. And I think there's something so fascinating in that. So um, people should keep an eye on GothamGrove.com. When it it does go live and when products are here, will consumers, so, you know, if since this show is on the internet, Mm -hmm. will consumers all over the country be able to order products from GothamGrove.com? Yes. You will get them on the internet. Awesome. (laughs) That's that's great. Um, Well, we're pretty much out of time. Do you guys have anything else you want to add about timeline of when products are coming or events that you have coming up? Uh, I think, well, we'll be at the uh, Fancy Food Show. For one of our partner, yep, the Sesame Perilla Oil. And I think the next big thing is getting our website live and again you know we are on instagram um just at at gotham grove yeah at gotham grove um we love any feedback any kind of product that you've been wanting to get have a hard time finding that's always very welcome cool well thank Thank you guys so much for coming on thank you for having us i have to give a shameless plug here for my book vinegar revival comes out august 1st it's a guide to making and using vinegar at home you can pre-order it at vinegarrevival.com or on amazon or from your local bookstore wherever you get your books and uh, thanks everybody for listening to feast your ears today big thank you to david tattashore for engineering the show every week you can find feast your ears as well as lots of other great shows at heritageradionetwork.org and on itunes and stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts you can follow me on instagram at the foodballer talk to you next week listening to heritage radio network food radio supported by you for our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events subscribe to our newsletter enter your email at the bottom of our website heritageradionetwork.org connect with us on facebook instagram and twitter at heritage underscore radio heritage radio network is a non-profit organization driving conversations to make the world a better fairer more delicious place And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.